Revelation 3, the first six verses. It's on page 1235 in the Pew Bible. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Sardis was a church that was dead. And in most circumstances, death is very final, isn't it? But we worship a God of resurrection. Our next hymn says, He speaks, and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. Let's stand and sing, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. And as we sing, we're going to bring our morning offering as part of our worship. Please sit down. Some years ago, I led a school's mission in mid-Wales. And when I was there, my host was showing me around the town and he pointed out a big chapel building. And he said, 50 years ago, that chapel which seats 2,000 people was full. Today, the congregation is eight. 50 years, 2,000 to eight. I don't know the story in between, though you can guess some of it. Maybe it went through that phase that Sardis was in, of a church that seemed to be alive, but actually the real spiritual life had gone out of it. When the spiritual life goes gradually, all the rest of the life goes, and it dwindles to a handful and to none. So here's the question, is Monthly Baptist Church a dead church? Well, not in terms of numbers. First service in the day, 50 or 60 folk here. There'll be a few hundred at the next one. And getting over 100 tonight, so not in terms of numbers. What about are we dead in terms of spiritual life? I don't think we are. But the danger is always there. If a church can go from 2000 to 8 in 50 years, in the lifetime of some of its members, any church is always in danger of losing its life spiritually and then practically. We're not exempt by being a big church. You know, we look at some of the village churches around the southwest and we say, oh, well, there's a dozen folk there. It's not going to last too long. But not the Baptist. We've got hundreds. Of course, we'll go on forever. That's no guarantee. And so this warning that comes to Sardis is a warning that we need to heed and think about an act on. The letter is from Jesus, who's described as holding the seven spirits and the seven stars. 
The seven stars means the churches. And it's again, it's saying that these churches are held solidly in the hand of Jesus. The seven spirits refers to the work of the Holy Spirit. Not that there are seven Holy Spirits. The seven is the number of completeness. And so the Holy Spirit is described as the seven spirits because of the completeness of the work that he does in these seven churches, in every church, in the life of every believer. And it's written to a church that in the first century was already a proverb, a byword. Everybody knew about Sardis. And they knew about Sardis because of something that had happened years before. It was the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia, and in 560 BC, so over 600 years before this letter is written, the king was a man named Croesus. Yeah, that's the guy as rich as Croesus. That's what he was. He was king of Lydia. His capital was Sardis, and Sardis was a very rich city. It was in the right place to be an important commercial center. It was the center of the woolen industry. And there's gold and then there are hills. In fact, so much gold that it washed down in the river and people could literally pick gold out of the river, according to the Greek historian Herodotus. He's the one who tells us the story. He might have embellished it a little bit to make his points. But Croesus was rich. Sardis was rich. Lydia was rich. And Croesus had ambitions. And he thought... I am going to attack the Persian Empire, which was the empire under King Cyrus. So he did, as people always did in those days, he sent messengers to Delphi, to the oracle, and said, what will happen if I attack the Persian Empire? And the message came back from the oracle and said, if you cross the river, that's the boundary between Lydia and Persia, you will destroy a great empire. Well, he should have known because oracles are notorious for giving you double meanings. But he took it to say, if I cross the river, I will destroy the Persian Empire. And so he got his army together and he got all his allies in, and they went and they fought a battle. And it was pretty indecisive. Nobody really won. So Croesus decided to pack up and go home. And he sent his various allies to their homes but something totally unexpected happened. Cyrus, with his army, sneaked along behind. And Cyrus attacked Croesus in Lydia, around Sardis. And the Lydians were famous for their cavalry. But when the cavalry attacked the Persian army, the horses were spooked because in the front line of the Persian army, there were lots of camels, and the horses didn't like the smell of the camels. And so the Libyan army was, the Libyan cavalry was rendered ineffective, and Croesus lost the battle. But he didn't worry. He went back to Sardis. Now, Sardis, the, uh, the experts tell us the Greek word Sardis is a plural word, because there were two cities of Sardis. There was the big, sprawling city at the foot of the hill, and there was a smaller, walled, compact city at the top of the hill. And that city at the top of the hill was famous for being absolutely impregnable. It was a very odd kind of rock which crumbles and breaks into all sorts of sheer drops and edges. And you can't climb it. That's what everybody knew. The only way you can get up there is up the road to the front gate, which, of course, is suicide if you're trying to invade a city. 
So he went up to the upper city and he sat there and waited for Cyrus to go home. But one day one of Cyrus's soldiers was watching. And he noticed a soldier up on the, the wall drop his helmet over the wall. And then to his surprise, the soldier climbed over the wall, climbed down, got into a gully and followed this gully round and got the helmet and went back up the gully and up over the wall and back into the city. And this got the Persian soldier thinking, I wonder if by going in these various gullies which form in this strange earth-like rock, whether we could actually find a way to the top that doesn't involve climbing these sheer cliffs. And so at night, a group of Persian soldiers worked their way up through the gullies and they got to the top. And there at the top was the wall of the city and there were no guards. Why do you put guards when you're on the top of an unclimbable hill? They didn't bother with it. The Persian soldiers went over the wall, they opened the gates of the city, the Persian army went in and Sardis was captured. And you know, bizarrely enough, a couple of hundred years later, 214 BC, Antiochus III, about whom I know absolutely nothing, but uh, Antiochus III captured the city in exactly the same way because the guards were complacent and thought they couldn't be defeated. And so Sardis was famous for complacency and couldn't care less. That's why Jesus says to them, you appear to be alive. Just as Sardis appeared to be invincible, he says to the church, you appear to be alive, but what you see is not what you get. Yet really, you were dead. But Sardis was dead because of the pride and the carelessness. And he says, wake up! That was the message the guards at Sardis needed to hear. They didn't bother. The church wasn't bothering. And Jesus says, quoting words that he spoke, to his disciples when he was on earth, I will come like a thief and you won't know when it will be. Just in the same way that Cyrus came when nobody was expecting him and conquered the city. So the message that Jesus gives to this church is a message that not only the people in Sardis would have known, everybody in the Greek and Roman Empire would have known about this. It was a byword. It was famous for what had happened. And Sardis was not only famous as careless and conceited, it was also famous for loose living, luxury and pleasure. It was uh, a place where you could buy, you could do, you could get anything. You could live how you liked. There was no kind of depravity that you couldn't find in Sardis. Now, in a lot of the cities that we've looked at in other cities around the, the Roman Empire, there were all sorts of tensions, particularly between Gentiles and Jews. And uh, they didn't, in general, get on with each other. The Jews, generally, in the first century, didn't get on with very many people. And actually, the Romans had given them all sorts of exemptions to the law, because they knew that, in general, Jewish people would rather die than deny the practices of their religion. But Sardis was an exception. The, the historical evidence that's been found suggests that actually the synagogue and the temple got on really well together. They didn't like, let a little thing like religion 
get in the way of doing business and having a good time. And there was a lot of accommodation. And there was no, there's no history of persecution of the Jews or trouble between Jews and Gentiles in that city. They had worked things out, they had compromised, they had fudged it, so they all got on very well. And you can understand when Christians were converted, whether from Gentiles or from Jews, that they followed the same kind of pattern. Let's not be extreme about this religion. Yes, we believe in Jesus and we're going to follow Jesus, but it'll all slot in with everything else that happens in the city. Nothing needs to change. We don't need to upset people. One commentator puts it like this. He says, Numerous details tend to confirm and illustrate an impression that Jews and Christians in the city had long sought a modus vivendi, a way of living by accommodation to their pagan surroundings. The distinctive character of the church's faith had rather been so far lost in accommodation to society that it aroused no opposition. Spiritual poverty and complacency were thus leading the church into moral error. In other words, there was no difference between the church and the culture of the society around it. Now, culture is a funny thing. Culture is a very dangerous thing because culture is all that stuff we take for granted without thinking about. It's all those values that we assume and seldom ever challenge. We've had an example of it in the press recently, haven't we, with these, this report on what's happened in Rotherham. Why were all those children abused and why was nothing done for a long period of time? Well, because there was a culture and those in authority subscribed to a culture that said nothing is so important as to risk being accused of racism. In other words, not disturbing the racial mix and that the creating racial tensions is the most important thing and nothing else counts. I don't suppose for a moment anybody sit that, sat down and had an intellectual debate on that or argued it, out, argued it out. It was just the culture. That was what everybody in those positions knew and believed. And so they acted according to it. They also acted to, according to a, a culture which thankfully is mainly gone now, but which was, has been prevalent in the past. It says, girls that are abused bring it on themselves. It's their own fault. A terrible thing. And yet that was a culture which has been long-lasting. And people make their judgments on it. Not because they've sought out the situation, not because they've invested the facts, but because it's just in your head, this is what's true. That's the power of culture. Some of it's very simple things. You know, we've had this debate, haven't we? What does it mean to be British? I was very interested. I saw a piece that said, um, the government is going to insist on, on British values being taught in nursery schools. I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what they're going to do. Just so salute the flag, let the Americans or something. No, apparently, and this is really going to shock you, it's saying please and thank you and taking turns. And I thought, do you know, I don't know a nursery school that doesn't do that and hasn't done it for years. But apparently that's a British value. And maybe it is. Maybe, well, certainly, um, no offence to anybody here that's German, but we have German students come in to swim. And one of the things that they have to learn as part of the culture is 
that the British are very keen on saying please and thank you. In German culture, you don't keep saying please and thank you, apparently. And so you come across as very abrupt, whereas they think we're very florid and over the top. And this is one of the things that's had to be, uh, we, we've now got a, a sort of briefing paper for German students that come in. That when, when people look at you and think, oh, blooming cheek, it's simply because you haven't said please. So the, these are cultural things we don't think about, like joining a queue and all these other things, taking turns. Um, culture, it's pervasive, it's invasive, it's there, and we don't think about it. Paul uh, warns of the danger of the church being swallowed up by the culture around in Romans 12:2, and J.D. Phillips has brilliantly translated it. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within. You see, to be a Christian is to be made holy. And the word holy means to be set apart, to be different. And the Christians in Sardis were not prepared to be different because of their faith. It cost too much. They were going to lose business. They were going to lose friends. They were going to lose influence. They were not prepared to be different, except for a few. Verse 4, a few who have not soiled their garments. The church, I'm guessing, probably looked very successful. I'm guessing it probably had some pretty influential and successful people in it. Prosperous people. But Jesus says, it's dead. It's not a church anymore, it's just a social club. Because there is no difference between what happens in the church and what happens in society around. And that's the warning that we have to take on board. And we have to ask the difficult question, what are the elements in our culture? Because there's masses of things in our culture. I don't think there's anything wrong with people in the church saying please and thank you. That's part of our culture. But there are a lot of things in our culture we have to look at and say, should these be in the church or should the church be countercultural on these issues? And how do we go about it and how do we be different? There's no point being different just for the sake of it. Let me mention three things, which I think are three basic ones, and they're ones which come out in the other letters. Our culture at the moment is full of complicated relationships. Once upon a time, everybody assumed, and always lived like this, but everybody assumed that the normal way of living was mum, dad, and I was going to say 2.4 kids, it was probably six or seven kids, but you know. Family, that type of family, was assumed as being the norm. That's what society believed in. Of course, there were heaps of exceptions, and there have been all the way down through history. Now society says family is whatever you want it to be. Relationships are whatever you want them to be. And the church has a challenge. What are we going to do about that? Do we say, yeah, actually, that's a great step forward. And we need to embrace it and welcome it, and we'll just join in with it. Or do we say, well, actually, it's gone too far. And some of these relationships that are being put forward as right and proper are actually not in God's sight right and proper.
it's not easy. Because so often in the past, the church has got it right and got it wrong at the same time. We've got it right and we've said, this is what the Bible teaches and this is what God wants. And we've got it wrong saying, therefore, we don't have anything to do with you lot. Where our model is Jesus, who lived a life of perfect holiness and yet was called the friend of tax collectors and prostitutes. He welcomed everybody regardless of who they were and how they lived and what they did without ever compromising the truth of what God says is the way we should live. And this is a challenge that's facing us. It's going to be one of the big issues. It's going to come up particularly in relation to gay marriage and all that sort of thing, but it's much bigger than that issue. The whole thing about relationships and how we welcome people, how we care for people, how we share the gospel with people whose relationships are complex. Oh, and by the way, the traditional one of get your life sorted out and then you can come and join us is heresy. That's called salvation by works. We believe in salvation by grace. Come to us and join us. And with the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and the loving care of the fellowship, we will help you to get your life more where God wants it to be. And then the second thing in our culture is consumerism. We're all rich, because we don't feel rich, because, you know, there's this guy, Chris Dawson, who runs the range, he's a billionaire, just for selling all sorts of remaindered stuff around the country, fantastic, we're not rich, we are not billionaires, yes we are rich, because the simple definition of rich is, we have more than we actually need, and I don't suppose there's anybody here who's only got the clothes that they need, the food that they need, the furniture that they need. I haven't. I've got heaps of stuff. We've been doing a bit of a clear out in August, and I've been, I've been making the ultimate sacrifice. I've been sending books to the charity shop. I hate parting with books. We are rich. We have more than we need. But crucially, our culture says the whole purpose of life is to get richer. I'm not. Uh, an expert on economics. But our economic system is based on continual growth. It's always got to be more and more and more. In the end, that is not sustainable, even on an economic level, let alone in trying to understand what God is saying. Now, it's not sinful to be rich. Nowhere does the Bible say it's sinful to be rich, but it says it's dangerous. Incredibly dangerous. Because strangely enough, the more we have, the more we want. And there's that temptation that in the end we worship money, possessions, and the rest of it. And the church is called always to use what we have for the work of the kingdom and to care especially for the poor and the oppressed and the weak and the vulnerable. There are no absolute rules. You must per 10% of your money in the church offering. You must do this. You must do... No. God says, you and I together will work out how you're going to use the stuff that I've blessed you with so that you can be a blessing to others and so you can build the kingdom. And we have to fight against the culture of consumerism. But then thirdly, we, there's a thing in our society, in our culture, which I've called Convenience. 
just so I've got three C's. Um, but culture is about doing what suits us. Ideas in the past, we often had a culture of duty. You do what is right because it is your duty. Now we do what feels good, what's convenient, what fits in with our lifestyle. It's all part of this having more money, more possessions, more time, more everything else. We've got more freedoms. And so everything has to fit in. So we've got to have freedom about which school our child goes to. They'll try and work that in practice. You'll find it doesn't work quite so easily. Likewise, on which hospital is going to treat you. Um, more, more easily, we've got choices of where we go for our holidays, what we eat, where we live, what jobs we do. Um, 101 things we can choose. And choice is the thing that our society says is a good thing. And it comes over into the church. I will go to the church that suits me. In that church, I will get involved with the activities that suit me. And if these things stop suiting me, well, I won't come. Why should I get involved in stuff that isn't for me? And that culture comes into the church. And we lose the idea that we are called to be members of a body with a role to exercise. Now, Muttley Baptist Church is at one of those critical points in its history. We're looking for a new future. We're looking for a senior minister to come in. We're looking for a youth pastor to come in. We're looking, expecting things to change. Hey, let me warn you. Don't expect a senior minister to come in and sort everything out. It isn't going to happen. Nor does God intend it to happen. You see, not only is a minister called to a church, every church member is called to a church. And we are called to have roles. And we are called to play a part. It may be a totally informal part that nobody knows about. Sometimes we just pray. Or those conversations that go on that so encourage other people. It may be a more formal part of taking a job in the church. But we have to break away from this. I will do what suits me. That I will do what God is calling me to do. And we need to recommit ourselves to sacrificial prayer and sacrificial service, and sacrificial giving. And a simple way of explaining the word sacrificial is doing stuff we don't like. Because there's a cost in a sacrifice. There's hard work in a sacrifice. And society around us, the culture that we're in, says, don't bother with it. Do the stuff you want. Do the stuff you enjoy. But God says, I have a job for you. And it's going to cost you, because it cost my son to die on the cross. And you're not paying back what he's done, but you're expressing your love and your gratitude. In the synagogues and the temples back in the first century, they had membership books. We've got a membership book here at Mutley. When we have new people come into membership, the book is usually down there, people signing it. And if your name was in the temple membership book or the synagogue membership book, you were pretty okay because you were regarded as a normal, acceptable person. If you tried to be too openly Christian, then your name was crossed out. And everybody knew that you were a troublemaker, that you were bad news. 
And Jesus says to those few insiders who were prepared to be different, the temple and the synagogue may blot you out of their books, but I will never blot your name from the book of life. But acknowledge your name before my Father and the angels. There's a more important book. The book that says we belong to Jesus. And yet, if we're different for our faith, society may reject us, our friends and family may reject us, all sorts of people might cause trouble for us, but Jesus will never reject his people. Why should we be different? Why should we challenge the culture that we live in? Because Jesus loves us and has died for us. Because Jesus sends his Holy Spirit, that sevenfold spirit, to empower us. Because Jesus wants us to show him to the world. What does the church have to offer the world if the church is exactly the same as the world? And, and here's another theme that runs through these seven letters, because Jesus is coming again. And we will see him. And we will be with him. And he will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. The church at Sardis seemed to be alive, but it was dead because it was just the same as the world around it. God calls us to be different. Different in a positive way. Different in a loving way. Different in a thoughtful way. But different as we sacrifice our desires and our possessions and our attitudes to what God wants so that we can serve him in this world. Let's pray together.